0: This was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets.
1: So the number for me was a number that would allow me to
0: never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Worlow. Hey guys, this is John Worlow This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're gonna learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So when's the right time to sell your business? Man, if you had a crystal ball, wouldn't that be great? You could figure out the perfect moment to sell. Of course, none of us have a crystal ball. Which begs the question So, how do you determine when the right time to sell is? You know, I think one of the ways to look at this is to say when you get an offer to buy your business that not only pays full price for your business what it's worth today, but also pays some value in the future, basically pays for what your business will be worth if you hit your targets in the future. That's a really good time to sell. And that's exactly the situation David Will found himself in. Dave's the founder of a company called Peach New Media. He called himself the Chief Peach uh, and went on to build a, a really successful learning management software company. And he sold it in 2015 because he received an offer from a private equity group that not only paid fair price for what his business was worth today, but also paid some future value. And Dave looked at his business like an investor would look at a stock and said, man, I'm not only getting paid for the value I've already created, but also some future value. And for him, that was the right time to sell. So you'll hear how Dave sort of rationalized his decision to sell. Uh, You'll hear about what other acquirers look for when they go to make an acquisition in a company. Um, You'll hear how to listen and think about your business as an investor would You'll hear about what Dave calls cup holder ideas and how they impact the value of your business. Here's Chief Peach, David Will. Dave Will, welcome to the podcast. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. This is awesome. So tell me about this company, Peach New Media. What did you guys do?
1: Yeah, so uh, Peach New Media was a software and services company, the emphasis being on the software. It was a learning management system, and our focus was on the association space. So in a nutshell, we hosted and distributed educational content for associations.
0: How did you get into that?
1: <laughs> so I, um, uh, back in 2000, here's, here's a little bit of a story for you. So I started my career... Um, you know, I went to college, and then I, I I left college, worked for a few years at for a company called Nielsen, um, in the consumer goods industry. I, um, uh, I I worked for the obligatory three years before I get my MBA. Got my MBA, got out, got into a, at the time one of the big five. Uh, it was Price Waterhouse. Did, did some consulting and systems integration to Siebel and SAP stuff. So I was doing the corporate path, and I was doing everything I thought made sense to, I don't even know really what I was trying to do. I was just trying to get the job and do the right thing. And I I can't say there wasn't a single day that I went to work feeling like I've made it, feeling like this is what I was made to do. And so eventually, I'm 30 years old. My wife and I, uh, we had just been married for a couple years, three years or so. She had a new baby. Uh, we had a new baby in, in her arms uh, one day in our new house in a fairly affluent neighborhood. And I'm at work. I get pulled into the HR office at 10 a.m. and, uh, and I got laid off. So I called her. I walked down to the pier in Boston where uh, I took the ferry home back to to our house on the south shore, and uh, I remember calling my wife at ten thirty in the morning to let her know I was coming home, and I just broke down into tears. John, it was uh, um, it was somewhat unexpected as well, but the minute I heard her voice, and I knew I could probably hear the 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 murmurs of of our baby Zach, who's now sixteen. I could I think I could hear the murmurs of of his voice in her arms, and it hit me like a ton of bricks at that moment that i uh, I had this immense responsibility on my shoulders. And so uh, I, I got home and uh, the, the story continues on from there. It actually uh, ends the day, ends with with me slicing my finger with a weed whacker and making a trip to the hospital. So that was a hell of a day right there, but I'll tell you what what happened from there was um, uh, I subsequently I was offered another job, very similar job, and it was a point where I had to have a heart-to-heart with Nicole and myself for that matter to say, what am I doing? What, what do I really want to do and how do I get there? And it, it was at that moment that, that she encouraged me to turn the job down shortly after that a buddy of mine came to me with a suggestion that we start selling i laughed because it's just so ridiculous he said uh, so hey dude listen I'd, i've got this deal with a web conferencing company i think i can get us some web conferencing we could sell that to some tired old executives and they don't know how to do this this is back in 2000 they don't know how to do all this webex stuff we could we could teach them how to do web conferencing and make a few bucks i thought i'm in so that, that was, right there, was the beginning of what ultimately became the software company. I was reselling web conferencing. And for a long time, this guy kept his job. Um, he was awesome to work with, a great partner. I ended up buying him out two or three years into it when our business was you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue. I ended up buying him out for $17,000 and a laptop. You know, and, and, but ultimately, it was the point where I said, you know what, either I'm all in, or I'm out. And I wanted him to be the same way. So that was the origin of what became Peach New Media. It was simply buying and reselling web conferencing. And I remember one more comment. I remember I didn't know this at the time, but I was told much later after the business was showing some signs of success that my father and my brother were talking about what the hell is Dave doing? What's he doing with himself? He, this is not going to, He can't make anything out of selling web conferencing. What the hell is he going to do with this? And so needless to say, it it, it turned out okay.
0: <laughs> well, where did it go from web conferencing and, and what did it end up, end up when, you, when you eventually sold the business? What were you in the business by the time you were selling?
1: Well, yeah, let, let, let me start at the end, um, and then I'll work back to to meet up with how we got from web conferencing here. But we ended up uh, selling the business. Um, I say we, I ended up selling the business. At this point, um, I'd gone through uh, another partner, again, bought that partner out a few years later. I ended up selling the business. So it was in 2015 that I sold the business to a private equity firm, AKKR, um, who uh uh, is a phenomenal firm. They are, they are the epitome of private equity in the way that they do business. It's, it was a real honor to work with them in the way that they stuck to the word. They were incredibly smart people. I mean, it was actually quite intimidating working with, with these guys that, that crunched the numbers and worked the hours that they worked to make sure they're making the right decision. Anyway, needless to say, sold the business um, for uh, a very healthy multiple of, of, um, of what it was worth. And, um, and I ended up working for the, acquire, the acquiring company for about nine months before going off my own. We can get back to that if you want. But the gap in between there... Essentially, is taking this service oriented business where there's no value because we didn't, all we had were clients. We didn't even own software. We owned nothing. And it was essentially uh, uh, me. And depending on what period of time, you're looking at a few employees. Well, what happened is we started to do some work with organizations like uh, consumer goods companies, including Walmart. And this was a really cool. um, Piece of business that worked for us. Walmart actually never paid us a dime, but Walmart helped us construct what became our learning management system. So, Walmart has about 50,000 suppliers that they sell, uh, of whom's product they sell in their store. So, 50,000 suppliers are using Walmart's software, and 50,000 suppliers don't know how to use it very well. So 50,000 suppliers are looking for ways to learn how to use Walmart's system called Retail Link. So what we did is we created a Retail Link user group online. And this essentially was a place where Retail Link users, or these 50,000 suppliers, could come access content for a fee. And that fee went directly to us. So that was the very first piece of business that we built around our own infrastructure. And from there, instead of creating these one-off sites, we discovered the association world, which is a very similar member-based kind of model. And we, we built a learning management system that we could basically flip on overnight and uh, create all of these learning portals, this learning management system for our clients.
0: So if I run an association and I've got content that I want my members to know about. Mm -hmm. um,
1: Or or that you want to sell them because it's a revenue stream.
0: yep, Got it. Then I might hire your company to build it out for me and then offer it either paid or unpaid to my members.
1: Kind of. You would take care of creating the content yourself. You know, and oftentimes the content's just video recordings from an in-person seminar, or maybe it's uh, something that you want to get a little fancier with it. But no, we didn't build the content. The content, it's up to you as the association to build the content. You've got the experts, you've got the resources to build the content. What we're going to do, what our system is going to do, is host it and distribute it. We were the middleman. We were the man between your content and your consumer, your member. So all our system did was host it, sell it, distribute it, keep track of, of who watched what, did, did the quizzing, did the certif- certificates, did the, uh, uh, all of the transactional stuff between you, the association, and your members.
0: Got it. And what made you want to sell this business? What was the trigger that, that got you thinking maybe I want to sell? They called me. They being the yeah,
1: they are called. It's I really had no intent on selling it so soon. As an executive team, I had a, a five person executive team. At this point, we we're forty employees, and we um, I, we the the five of us sat down in one of these quarterly uh, executive retreats that we'd go on, which was just the, one of the best parts of the job. I thought these retreats where we'd go find a cabin somewhere. Um, And we'd get creative. We'd we'd start to think about how the heck can we make this business better than it was yesterday. And we do this on a quarterly basis. Um, And in one of these meetings, we said, what do we want the business to look like in three years from now? And it was kind of an arbitrary number, three years. And we said, okay, in three years, it's, 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 uh, it's, you know, what's funny. It, It makes me think of, of something I heard somewhere where somebody said, you can overestimate what you do in a week and underestimate what you can do in two years. And so our thought was, well, shoot, let's, let's try not to underestimate what we can do in two years. In this case for us, it was three. Let's see really what is just this side of impossible. That we could do in the next three years, so we created this grand vision with the help of, of Kyle Cruiser Howland from the Core Group. So I'm going to plug him. I just I I interviewed him recently for the Entrepreneurs Organization podcast as well. But Cruiser uh, helped us through a Prometheus process. That's what's called the Prometheus process to create this fantastic vision of the future. And so it's this vision of the future that we were heading towards. And in and, and the future said either we're going to be so healthy people are going to be scooping us up or we're going to be so healthy we don't want to be scooped up. Which So my goal was not to sell the business. My goal was to create a business that was incredibly valuable, both from a revenue perspective, a growth perspective, and a profitability
0: perspective. So people interested in the Prometheus process can obviously log into the EO podcast to get more on that. Just give us maybe 30 seconds on what the Prometheus process is.
1: Yeah, it's it's a visioning process strategic planning process and yes entrepreneurs organization virtual learning that's the name of the podcast there's a podcast in there with a gentleman named cruiser Kyle cruiser Howland what uh, a handle by the way isn't that cool oh, yeah yeah he he's he's a um, he's a marine he he flew for the marines and uh guy's are just an like, the, the women in our office called him the silver fox <laughs> because he's this he's this really good looking you know 40 50 year old guy and Um, he's a pilot, of course, not just a pilot, but a fighter pilot. So what could be better than that? Yeah. So, but Prometheus in a nutshell is a, um, strategic planning program. It's, it's not unlike, uh, Vern Harnish's Rockefeller Habits or, um, or, or, uh, Jim
0: Collins' BHAG, and kind of what are we going to do exactly. what are we going to own got it okay yeah yeah and and so it's a way of
1: of creating a picture in the future and then fi- breaking it down almost to a daily uh, task level so it's a way of taking a big picture and breaking it down so you know exactly how you're going to get there
0: so you go through this process and you commit to building this company so that it's so attractive you're going to get inbound like how how long after that Day in the woods with your executive team. Did you actually get approached by AKKR?
1: It's funny. It really was in the woods. It was in the mountains of North Georgia that we, um, <laughs> that we. I think that we began that process. By the way, it was about six month process going through and creating this vision, getting it refined, and bringing it to the company. But we had a very very transparent management style. I mean, we were working very, very closely with our 40-some odd employees throughout and definitely towards the implementation phase of this of this Prometheus process. Um, to be honest, I don't remember the exact dates. I think we we're about a year into our three-year plan when we got the phone call. And it was about a year and a half in when we
0: when we sold. Did the five people on your executive team have equity in the business, or did they have some sort of financial incentive to to consummate a deal with AKKR?
1: Um, two of them, uh, uh, it's, yes, there, for each of them had some incentive. Um, to be honest, I, I don't think it was the financial incentive that motivated them. I think everybody in my company was confident that either with or without Peach, they were going to find success and happiness. I think for a company like ours, especially we're so transparent, especially for the executive team where uh, there was so much ownership and um, passion for the business, which is was part of the, the leadership style is – I did not run this like a dictator. I mean, the the people on my executive team – in fact, I, I would argue the people all the way through the company were – are still to this day, but were certainly under the peach umbrella, um, incredibly dedicated to the culture and to the vision of the company. So – I, I think we had a team of uh, the executive team of five people that wanted to create the best thing that we could create. And again, the intent was not necessarily to sell it. The intent was to make a product or to create a company of immense value.
0: I guess where I'm where I'm going, Dave, is, is I'm 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 trying to square that with the goal of the Prometheus process being. Uh, y- your goal uh, in going through the process was we're going to create something so attractive. We're going to get offers or we're going to be so successful that we're going to be rebuffing those offers. I guess it, I, I, I find it interesting that the other, f- I can see why as the owner and shareholder, that would be attractive as a goal. Mm-hmm. What, I'm str- what I'm trying to get a handle on is, is why that was motivating or how that was motivating to the other executives at the table.
1: Well, they they have a choice, and and in fact, we all do. We all have a choice of whether we want to stay where we are, and continue doing what we're doing, or do we want to grow and evolve? And in a company that size, forty people big, is not a big company. In a company of that size, there's really only one direction to go, and you can't stay stagnant. And so, their goal is to grow. They wanted to grow and expand and become the better. People become better at their jobs and create a better company. Now, what does that lead to? Well, for for all of them on the executive team, it leads to some financial reward. Uh, not life changing financial reward, I think, for any of them, but some nice financial reward. For and 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 depending on the scenario and who it was, uh, some received more than others. But um, uh, but but I think the reward came from knowing that they had created something of great value. Now, let's tack on to that. If they didn't do that, I don't think they would find their job stimulating or rewarding, just as I didn't, just as nobody else in the company would have. It would have been another 9 to fiver where you come, you punch the card, and you leave. That's what you do when you're not building something to make it better and better and better. So the other thing I'd add to that is when you have a company... That's growing, it gets to a point where it needs to grow in another shell. So think about this from a <laughs> from a crustacean perspective. When you grow, actually, crustaceans probably grow their own shells. So forget about that one. So you have two choices. You can grow on your own and get bigger and bigger and bigger. Usually that takes some seed money or, or some some investment. And it's a it's a riskier move for the owner. Or you can take a company, build it to a certain level, and then hand it off to an organization that's willing to take additional risk, put some money into it, and build it to be better. And that's where we were. We were at a point where the only way we were going to make it substantially better is through more investment and uh, bringing it into this bigger environment where it could do bigger and better things.
0: This is such a key point. I wanna take a minute and kind of address my listeners just kind of directly here, Dave, because this is such an incredible point. When you start off a business, you are all in as the owner with 100% risk on, right? You Mm -hmm. are taking all the risk. But as your business grows and becomes more successful, many owners, like let's say you've got a business worth 10 million, $20 million, many business owners realize they've got that much equity in the game, and mm-hmm. they become so much more conservative in their management style. They don't want to take risks because they think, like, my entire net worth is in this company. I don't want to risk it. And yet, and so they become the, for for people who work in these companies, incredibly boring places to work because there's there's just no risk appetite from the owner. You bring in a private equity company or a strategic investor who's a billion dollar company, and they look at a ten or twenty million dollar company. And they think, well, let's let's juice this thing up. Let's take some risk. Let's grow this thing. All of a sudden, the employees get rejuvenated there's more capital there's more appetite to risk the the owner gets to leave having done their turn but you know this is such a key point that people forget about entrepreneurs we think of us as entrepreneurs as these crazy cowboy entrepreneurs that are you know always risk on reality is we get to a point i think every most of us get to a point where we're like hold on a second i don't want to risk the whole thing again
1: yeah it's it's um I think you nailed it. It's it, it, there's three kinds of businesses, or, or I, I often think of three. So let me break businesses into a category of three kinds of, of startups. You have um, you have the moonshot startups, like the the guys that made Twitter and LinkedIn, and I mean these are crazy, uh, and these guys had huge aspirations right from the get-go, right? So they they ended up walking away with 30 percent of the business if they're lucky, and. And uh, They're incredibly rich with these multi-billion dollar valuations. Those are, that's the moonshot. Then you have on the other side of the spectrum, um, a lot of accountants and, and attorneys might build a firm um, that's a lifestyle business that really has no exit of substantial value. But it builds great freedom into their lives, great revenue, it's a good income, and and they have control of their lives. You have the people in the middle, which is there's a lot of people in the middle like me where you may seed it so that you can retain 100% ownership. So you're putting in whatever money you can scrape up. And usually that's money right out of your refrigerator. In other words, it's food on the table that you're taking off your table to vacation. It's that boat. It's the college savings that you're taking and you're putting into the business so that you can grow. And then you grow very, very slowly because that's the way it takes to grow a business that's self-funded. And the more conservative, the slower you grow. Now, the risk happens when there's something happens in the market. 2008 didn't hit us very hard. It just happened we, we were in a market or maybe we were growing well enough so that it didn't affect us much. But it did affect a lot of people, regardless of how conservative conservative they were. Their businesses were cut in half, and that's a major, major hit. So, yes, that had something to do with why... I chose to sell when I did. I did receive a phone call. They weren't the only private equity firm at the time that was interested in in my company. And it it was a very good time for lots of reasons. Number one is clearly the value was there. Number two, um, I could see some question marks in the future. I had to ask myself, can I build this business to be more valuable than what's on the table right now? Within a few years, and the answer was no. I, I, I didn't think I was going to be able to, um, to. I, I, let me rephrase that. I didn't want to take the risk that we're referring to, that would I'd need to take in order to get it to the next stage.
0: And so this offer came in from AK. Car- Did you look around? Did you talk to other potential acquirers?
1: Well, there was one other firm that, uh, that also had called about the same time. Um, and at the time, I was actually interested in acquiring another company. And so I was reaching out to them. So there was a little bit of change discussion going on. But I, I'd never put it on the market. I never went out for bids. It, it was really one of these things where um, they, they came through with an offer, and I had to decide whether or not it made sense or not. Yeah, so I, I I didn't put it out on the market. I think that's a big point to make because there's a lot of people that do, and in fact, I just talked to somebody today who had a business that he wasn't planning on selling. He was looking for investors. He just wanted a little funding, and he ended up finding I think about a dozen interested investors, and eight of them said, "We only want to buy the business. We, we don't want to invest in part of the business. We want the whole thing or nothing." So I thought that was interesting, but we never went that way.
0: In retrospect, um, I know we can't get into too much detail about the actual process itself of negotiation, but is there, is there one thing that you would advise other entrepreneurs to think about um, as they approach this, this, their, their exit, uh, one thing from a mechanics perspective or, or one thing from a kind of a, a how-to that, that would be helpful for others?
1: Uh, yeah, of course, and then there's, I mean, there's a handful of things I can think of off the top of my head. Number one is, um, and this is hard because you can't tell yourself to think this, but you're in the best position to sell when you don't necessarily need to or don't and, and, and or you don't want to. Um, that's the best time because then you're, you're, your negotiation isn't bluffing. Um, for me, I was looking for, it, it certainly couldn't be below market value. Now, that's a very subjective term, market value. And in fact, even market value wasn't necessarily uh, good enough for me. And, and right from the get-go, I made that clear. And how we ended you, up-
0: How did you determine market value? Like, how did you, what were you uh, looking
1: subjective, at? Subjective. How much would you buy a horse for? I mean, it's completely subjective. Complete. I mean, you could hire somebody to come in and do a fifteen, twenty thousand dollar evaluation of the business and give you a market value at the low and the high, and it's going to vary dramatically between the low and the high. At the end of the day. Um, there's certain metrics, you know, that in, in certain industries that say, you know, whether it's two times revenue or seven to 12 times earnings or, or whatever in the software industry, especially SaaS software, has certain metrics, whereas retail has another set of metrics. But to, to me, the, the only numbers that matter is what are the industry standards in terms of what has sold. Um, all these other spreadsheets that i mean, I sure. I'm sure the private equity firms all have their amazing, amazing spreadsheets and algorithms that they're working with that say this is the most we're willing to pay for this risk and this is the least – or no, there is no least, of course, but this is the range in which we expect to pay for this. And we will not go over X dollars. I guarantee every private equity firm has their calculations. I did not. All I had was a very subjective number in my head based on the number I wanted um, to trade my business for.
0: And why, what was that number? I don't need to know what the number was, but what was driving that number for you? What did that number represent for you?
1: It, 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 was, it was a number that um, basically said, I have ultimate control of what I do next, which means that um, I, I, what I don't want. To, you know what? Um, um, Zuckerberg, when he was offered seven hundred and seventy-five million dollars for his business, he said no. And and then the guy went back. He didn't even bring it to his board, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Zuckerberg, then, of course, the founder of Facebook.
1: Yeah, and so then, then uh, the, this is the CEO of Yahoo. I don't remember the name at the time. And then the CEO of Yahoo said, "God damn it! All right, we'll we'll give you a, a billion dollars." And Zuckerberg didn't want to take it, and he he went back to his board, and his board said, "Well, may, maybe we should." Um, I have the story backwards because he, the board said, "You know, maybe this is something we consider." I, I, you know what? I think it was actually the first offer—the seven seventy-five or seven fifty—and the board said, "You know, Zuck, maybe we should consider this." Zuck said, "Why? We're just going to come back and start another social media company, and I kind of like the one we have." So anyway, what I think the story goes on—he did actually get a billion-dollar offer. He took the offer for a billion from Yahoo. Uh, and then there was some negotiation. The guy from Yahoo got a little um, arrogant, and Zuck walked away. And you know the rest of the story. He never sold. So, um, but I loved his line when he talked to his board. Why we're just going to go back and do the same thing all over again? Well, it's a similar answer to me, minus a few zeros in the offer amount. But it was it was uh, it's a similar um, uh, story in the way that. Uh, I, I didn't want to have to go and get a job i didn't want to have to be dependent on finding another business to start up. I wanted it to be a joyful uh, uh, transition if I was going to leave the business. I love my company now I, I did not my identity was not the company when I left I did not go through any any bout of depression I didn 't go through any loss of identity because I never identified myself as the company but um, I really enjoyed the people. I really enjoyed our clients. I really enjoyed the culture. I loved it. It was it's it was awesome there, and uh, and I have very very fond memories. But, but lot- I wasn't itching to get out of it.
0: Okay, so a lot of people listening to this will be running successful companies. And in the back of their mind, they'll be like, man, maybe I should sell this thing. Or a lot of people will have the kind of permanent five-year sort of horizon where they say, you know, within five years, I'm going to sell this thing. The problem with that, of course, is it shifts every five years. There's another five years, and they yeah, wake yeah, up yeah. when they're 75, and they still haven't sold their that's company. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, you say that, but that's that's not the choice you made. You yeah, it is. You
1: made it. Oh, yeah. I, I Believe me, when I started, I said, I, I, I'm going to build this to the point where I could sell it. In a couple of years, so every every time I said, um, "I'm either going to build it to be valuable enough so I don't need to, or so that there's offers coming into the table." I didn't tell you how many times I said that. I said that a lot of times, all the way from starting it up and selling the web conferencing, and I had no idea what I was going to sell. But I've been saying that for a long time. So selling the company was has always been um, the plum. It's always been the 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 the. the Pot, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Um, I just hadn't, I, 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 would, I didn't think we were ready yet. That's all. It's, it's, I still thought we had more to do to build it to where it had to be. So I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, yeah, I'm going to sell this in the next five years. In fact, I love it. What that tells me is people are fired up and they have ideas and they want to make their, their, their business better. And I think that's awesome.
0: I guess a lot of people listen listen to that, however, and have received offers as you did, <laughs> and like Zuck, <laughs> dismiss them and say, "Not yet. It's it's not my time."
1: It, yeah that that that's not a it's not a financial decision. I mean Zuckerberg's decision to not sell it for seven hundred and fifty million dollars it's not because it wasn't enough money.
0: No, but in your case, you did make a dis- different decision, right? Like it's, at some point, you said, "Yes, I will." I'll take the money. Um, Damn. And, <laughs> yeah. And so I'm I'm trying to explore again. We've got a lot of listeners who, um, who probably are trying to figure out in their own mind when's the right time to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, they may be getting offers. They may know they could sell if they wanted to. Um, but they're just not sure when to pull yeah. the trigger.
1: I mean, th- that's a really interesting question because it's such a personal question, too, right? So, you you have some people, I, I have some friends I know that um, are, are looking into, or, or they're very close to selling a business for three, $4 million. Now, some would argue that's lifelong money, um, others would argue it's enough to get them to another stage and to start something new. Um, you know it's really a personal question. And then I have friends that have sold their business for 20, thirty million dollars. Uh, and and that's clearly lifelong money and uh, and, and, and upwards. And then I, I know people that have sold businesses for a hundred million dollars and they just go back into working again. So um, oftentimes the money is not the question on the table. The question is, are you tired of what you're doing? And are you, are you ready for another chapter in your life? Um, for me, the question was uh, more of an investment question. Has my investment reached its maximum value? And the answer was yes. It was time for me to cash in my chips on my investment. It was an investor's decision to sell, in my case. It was not a personal Um, life stage decision. But for other people, there's stages in their life where regardless of the investment, whether it is at the peak or not at the peak, that they might say, you know, it's time for me to sell or the contrary, you know, it's not time for me to sell right now, regardless of the stage of the investment. I don't know. I don't think that helped at all but I, I I see it as one of three things happening One is your investment's at its peak and you're doing this for the for an investment or your investment it has lots of growth but you're kind of tired of doing it or it's the other side of the spectrum where where your investment has uh, uh, like I said already maximized its value.
0: How did you tell Zach you were thinking of selling your company?
1: My son, my 16 year old hmm Well, I've got three sons um, and my wife. And you know what? It was – I love that question. Um, I told them in a similar way as I told all my employees. Um, And that is as it happened, uh, which I know is unusual to share this kind of information with your employees as you go. But it was a very transparent process, which some of that I regret. And some of that I don't, but with my, with my family, you know, I'd come home, we eat dinner together every night, part of the beauty of being an entrepreneur and except when I was traveling, of course, but we'd eat dinner together every night and, you know, anything of substance, I'd, I'd let them know. i let them know when I get a phone call from a private equity firm and I explain what a private equity firm is. And I explain what that might mean for us. And I explain, um, uh, what it means for our employees. And so it drove a lot of great conversation, a lot of great questions. To be honest, the kids didn't really understand the consequence. So uh, and, and I'm not sure they still understand what it means, even even at that age. I think that kind of goes, Oh, that's awesome. So I should be an entrepreneur then.
0: Or my old man's hanging around the house way too much. Yeah.
1: <laughs> dad, you should get a job or something. It
0: was way more fun when you weren't around dad. Oh. <laughs>
1: my friends' dads have jobs. How come you don't?
0: Yeah, yeah. That's a tough one. To you, mentioned, you mentioned regrets uh, about sort of sharing in sort of real time mm, what was yeah. going on. What were, what were the regrets you Oh,
1: gosh. You know? I, I, um, part of the success we had in the business was the transparency we had with our employees, and especially being a fairly small company. Um, when we were stressed about things, we shared that stress with the employees. Now, we had very constructive ways of sharing this information. Um, uh, and when things were going well, we shared that. We, 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 we gave back out quite a bit to the employees. Um, but we shared our successes and we st- shared our stresses. And the same came true when it got to the point where I was serious. I didn't tell everybody, hey, got a call from private equity firm today. But once the conversation got more serious, I started to have that conversation with people. And if you don't want rumors flying, you better have a fairly open conversation in front of a lot of people so that people get all the information in the way that you want them to hear it. Now, that's the good side. The good side is people feel as though they're a part of the team nothing's being left out. And that goes a long way. And it gives you a chance to address concerns as they're popping up. The downside though, is it creates a lot of question. Of course, it creates a lot of curiosity. And when things drag on longer than they should, or longer than you expect them to, it, it puts a little distraction into the air. So uh, to be honest, I don't know how I would do it again a second time. Um, but I, I am a firm believer in transparency um, with in, in the businesses that I've run.
0: We got to go. It's, it's, uh, it's time for your, uh, your next meeting. I know uh, you had yeah, a you hard stop. What next is? What's that? No, I don't.
1: I'm, I'm coaching cross-country at, <laughs> at the middle school. I love it. So I got a big meeting, <clears throat> and I got a big meeting that's going to incur about two miles of running at a very slow pace with some middle school boys and girls. <laughs>
0: You should be able to handle it. Um,
1: That's it's one of the beauties, though, and and I'll tell you, I this chat just I don't know if this summarizes things well, but I can say that I found my true passion when I was laid off. So I got laid off from my job, literally in tears, calling my wife one day, and it wasn't very long before I discovered. My, In fact, I'm getting a chill as I talk about this right now, right down the spine because it's so meaningful to me and it has nothing to do with the fact that I sold my business and I mean that. I found my passion that I've been working on and, sell, and building for the past 15 years. I really enjoy entrepreneurship. I love building business. I like culture. I like trying to find the scalability. I like satisfying clients. I like finding the thrill of finding more clients. I love the concept of recurring revenue. And I love this concept of cup holders, which I didn't even talk about. The, the idea of creating all these little things that are fairly new meaningless to the value of the product, but they're so important to, co- to to the client. You know, all of these concepts, I love these concepts. That's where my heart is. That's where my passion is. And that's where I can actually say that I've found some success in my career is in entrepreneurship. So I can say looking back in the past 15 years, I feel like I've built and and found the, something that's truly fulfilling for me. And I'm really... Um, I'm I'm really enjoying this this time now where I'm thinking about what's the next one? What's the next business? that I'm going to be able to bring to the table with with a team of people and and try to, in my little way, in just a little bit, make the world a better place.
0: Dave, I don't think we've heard the last from you for sure. I've, I can't wait to see what the next business is going to be. In the meantime, where do people uh, best find out about you? Can they find you on Twitter or uh, connect with you on social media? What's What's the best way to, for people to find you?
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm at Peach Dave on, uh, on Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Dave will, uh, peach new media is probably the, it'll pop up under peach new media. You know, I've got a little, um, I got a little site with all my social media stuff on it and uh, at, uh, davidrwill.com. But you know what? I, I'm happy to answer any questions. I'm in the process right now of, of, I've got a handful of ideas that I'm working on and, and I love it. It's just so much fun, uh, starting a new one. It's, it's, it's not easy. I, I forgot how hard it is to make a buck.
0: <laughs> I, fig- I think you're going to figure it out. Dave, thanks very much for joining us. John, thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com blog.